اعوذ باللہ من الشیطان الرجیم بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم ان دی نیم اف اللہ دا موس گریشس ایور مرسیفل السلام علیکم ورحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ می دی پیس اینڈ بلیسنگز اف اللہ بی اپون یو آل ویلکم ٹو انادر ایپیسوڈ اف دی بریکفاسٹ شو ہیئر آن دی وائس اف اسلام ریڈیو اسٹیشن یو ار لسننگ ٹو مائی سیلف سمر اینڈ وبار زمینی اینڈ وی ویل بی وتھ یو گاڈ ویلنگ آل دی وے اپ انٹل 9 او کلاک سو اف یو ڈو ہیو اینی کویسچنز اینی ریمارکس اینی کامنٹس دیٹ یو لائک ٹو میک پلیز فیل فری ٹو ڈو سو دی نمبر فور یو ایز آلویز از 0208 687-7878 and of course you can hit us up on our socials on Twitter and on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK um, we do have some very interesting uh, topics in line for you today uh, usually on the breakfast show on, on Tuesdays Um, we talk about three topics, three main topics. But uh, today we've uh, we are dedicating uh, uh, our show to two segments, a similar topic, um, and that is, of course, in regards to the 14th of Feb, um, which is Valentine's Day. Um, and in the first hour, uh, or the first segment, we're going to be talking about in sickness and in health, how to keep loving your life partner. Um, and in the second uh, segment, we're going to be speaking about weddings around the world love in different cultures and in different faiths so if you would like to get into uh, get in uh, touch with us if you would like to voice your opinion remember this is your radio station and we do love for you to get involved so do pick up the phone and give us a call 0208-687-7878 but before we get into uh, all of this uh, this this very happy topic I I think uh, Um, it could be sad for some as well, actually. But uh, but yeah, um, uh, Mubaris, how are you doing today? Yeah, yeah, I'm very good, Alhamdulillah. And, and yourself? Very good too, by, by the grace of Allah, the Almighty. Um, some, some interesting topics, uh, and we'll get into them in a short while. Um, but what's the weather looking like today? Um, I mean, we had a very misty start today, didn't we, Samar? Yeah. Uh, especially coming from, from your ends, it might have been a... Yeah, quite, quite a bit of fog as well, actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, today, this morning, there's uh, mist and, and, and fog. Uh, it will be slow to, to lift in southern and eastern areas to leave sunny spells for, for many. Uh, Northern Ireland and West Scotland will be windy and cloudy with a few spots of rain. Tonight, much of the UK will see plenty of clear spell developed once again and it will be locally uh, a, a little chilly a band of rain will move into northern ireland and western scotland towards dawn um wednesday so tomorrow england wales and east scotland will see plenty of sunshine in the morning a band of rain and strengthening winds will move in from the west through the day falling heavily at times and then the outlook for thursday to to saturday is that it will be rather cloudy on thursday with outbreaks of rain moving in from the west these mainly to the south brighter spells in the north at times a windy day on friday with gales and strong gusts in northern areas heavy rain in northern areas in the morning turning drier and brighter in the afternoon saturday will be cloudy and wet in the north drier and brighter further south So that is how um, you can expect for, for, for the, the weather, the weather uh, till Saturday. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I mean, it's, uh, it is, uh, it's still not time for us to pack up uh, our gloves and scarves. I mean, yesterday was, was nice and sunny as well at the same time. And I, I did leave the house without my jacket. Yeah. 
uh, but no, not today. It yeah, is, no, no. It's it's. I mean, it's it's typical uh, uh, English weather, and isn't it? And, and doing that mistake, and that mistake actually caught my <laughs> my throat today. Well, <laughs> um, uh, I hope you, you fully recover as well from that. Um, it, it is a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, the, the the sun's out, and you feel as if oh, maybe it's not too too cold today. Uh, but then you get out and you're uh, then you start start shivering and yeah, you're like, oh man, we make the same mistake every time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, it's our country. Well. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the that's the odd thing, isn't it? We don't we don't learn. It's it's wishful thinking, isn't it? Yeah. We we feel as if oh, if we don't wear the jacket today, then then maybe God will bless us with a, with a bit more sunshine. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, uh, getting into the newspaper headlines: uh, China's security risk and cousins' police failings. Um, so just getting into the the newspaper headlines for today, um, a week after earthquakes devastated parts of Turkey and Syria, the Daily Telegraph leads with a rare uplifting image from the disaster, showing a man in Hatay, southern uh, Turkey, celebrating after his mother was rescued, having spent 177 hours trapped under rubble. The paper's lead story focuses on what it says is the use of Chinese-made drones, quote-unquote, by British police forces raising security concerns, while another story says a new Brexit deal is expected to be announced in the next few weeks after the UK watered down resistance to European judges ruling on the Northern Ireland Protocol. The lead image of The Guardian is also from the earthquake, but from Syria, alongside an article that says the quakes have compounded, have co- compounded the crisis facing Syria, which, ha- which was already undergoing a 12-year civil war. The paper also focuses on the news that police missed opportunities to identify Wayne Cousins, a former Met police officer who killed Sarah Evard in 2021 as a potential sex offender and danger to a woman before he kidnapped and killed Miss Everard. Amid reports that the US is scrutinising its airspace more closely following the incursion of a suspected spy balloon from China earlier this month, the Daily Mail quotes Prime Minister Rishi Sunak as saying the country's armed forces are ready to shoot down Chinese spy balloons, quote-unquote. The paper also says the Prime Minister is undergoing pressure from within his party to take a harder line on China. The front page of the Times also includes a story about fighter jets being ready to shot down Chinese spy balloons. Although the paper's main story says water companies have privately lobbied to weaken the government's plans to reduce sewage spills from from storm overflows. The companies reportedly said the plan risks avoiding hundreds of pounds to household bills. The paper's front page also includes an image of the Queen Consort, who had to cancel engagements this week after testing, after testing positive for COVID. The Daily Star's take on developments in the US, where authorities have shot down three unidentified objects in recent days, is uh, that we can't rule out aliens, uh, quote-unquote. It includes an image of perhaps the world's best-known extraterrestrial ET apparently uh, reaching out to his family and says the UK government is keeping quiet on the invasion. Domestic politics dominate the front page of the Daily Express, which says 
that millions of people are facing the biggest council tax rises ever, in a further blow to those already hit by higher bills. The paper says that three out of four councils will put up the annual levy by the maximum amount of 5% in April. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Sun also focuses its uh, attention on the cost of living crisis, running what it says is an exclusive, saying that as people in the UK struggle with rising prices, an energy firm has flown 100 reps to a paradise island, quote unquote, on an all expenses paid trip. The UK's defence spending is the main story on the front page of the eye, which says Conservatives are pushing Chancellor Jeremy Hunt to increase the country's defence budget amid growing concerns in the US about unidentified objects from China. The paper also claims Russian President Vladimir Putin will feel emboldened if the UK doesn't boost its defence spending. The Metro leads on tributes paid to 16-year-old Brianna Gay, who was stabbed to death in a park in Cheshire on Saturday. The paper quotes family members describing her as strong, fearless and one of a kind, quote-unquote, and saying she was a larger-than-life character who would leave a lasting impression on all that meet her. Kenneth Noy, who stabbed Stephen uh, Cameron to death in an attack on, on an M25 interchange in 1996, leads the front page of the Daily Mirror. Claiming an exclusive, the paper says that Noy, who was released from prison in 2019, has said he is not a threat to Cameron's partner, Danielle Cable, who went into witness protection after he was convicted. <coughs> The Financial Times leads with an image from protests in Israel where people have demonstrated against efforts by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, to curb the powers of the country's judiciary. It also leads with a story saying that Amazon is playing, uh, planning to go big, quote-unquote, on the country's struggling grocery stores business. Um, mysterious objects in the sky occupy many front pages, as we've seen in the newspaper headlines today. The Daily Mail says Rishi Sunak is under growing pressure to take uh, a harder line on China, with uh, Conservative MPs saying he should formally designate Beijing as a threat. The I says that the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt says uh, the... Um, the row is leading to calls to increase defence spending. Former military leaders are quoted saying a failure to do so would also embolden Russian President Vladimir Putin. The Times reports that the RAF will examine intelligence gathered by the US military to see if it can improve its quick reaction force. According to the Daily Telegraph, the use of Chinese-made drones by British police forces has provoked security fears within the government. The paper says more than two-thirds of the drones are made by a Chinese firm that is blacklisted in the US. The Daily Telegraph, um, its uh, leader, uh, leader column questions whether adequate safeguards are in place. The Daily Star picks up on the admission by a U.S. Air Force general that he was not ruling out aliens. Its front uh, front page depicts E.T. Its editorial describes the comment as a major step forward in our dealings with the extraterrestrial. 
There is a dismay in the Express that millions of households face the maximum possible council tax increase. The paper says it is a further blow to those already hit by higher bills. Its editorial acknowledges that councils' budgetary pressures are down to funding shortfalls, but argues that spendthrift authorities are culpable too. The online-only independent has an article by a former CBI president who declares Labour to be the party of business. It says Paul Dreschler, who was also an advisor to David Cameron, showers praise on the party, something it describes as a hammer blow for the Tories. The Guardian... Sorry, the Guardian leads on the former Metropolitan Police Officer uh, Wayne Cousins, who uh, pleading guilty to charges of indecent exposure. The offences happened days before the, he kidnapped and murdered Sarah Everard. The paper says detectives missed clear chances to identify him as a potential sex offender. On his front page... The Times reports that water companies privately lobbied to weaken the government's tougher sewage rules. It suggests that they uh, argued that the £56 billion plan to reduce sewage spills from storm overflows risked uh, adding hundreds of pounds to household bills. It quotes various objections the, um, the the companies raised, such as opinion polls indicating that inflation was a greater concern for the public than the environment. The paper's editorial argues that if Britain is to enjoy the level of water quality that many other European countries take for granted, then customer bills must be permitted to rise. Um, and finally, the Telegraph suggests that a new Brexit deal could be announced within a fortnight. It has uh, been told by sources in both Brussels and London that a pact has been thrashed out. The paper suggests uh, progress has been made because the the UK watered down its hardline resistance to European judges uh, ruling on issues in Northern Ireland. Downing Street, it says, has stressed that elements of an agreement are still moving but did not deny that an announcement was expected soon. So that uh, was the um, the update for the, the for, for, for for the news articles for today. The front pages, as we can see, are, are talking about various different things. Um, as we can see, the, uh, most of it covering um, a little bit about Turkey and Syria, um, the Wayne cousins, um, a little bit about Brexit as well. Um, a, a few things in regards to what the British government is doing as well. But uh, was there anything uh, in particular which uh, caught your eye, Mubaraz, or even from within the newspapers, um, if there's something uh, interesting that you found? Um, well, I mean, we have got something going on, which has been going on for a while, and it's in regard it's in regards to the to the A&E and the healthcare in the UK. Uh, uh, unfortunately, um, and and one of the headlines it shows on BBC is that hospitals in England with worst A and E, um, you know, the weights are revealed. Mm. So the A and E waiting times have have deteriorated so much this winter that at some hospitals in England, more than half of patients have had to wait more than four hours. BBC analysis of data for December and January shows Hull University hospitals. Y Valley and Shrewsbury and Telford were worst for A&E waits. 
The best trust out of the 107 providing data, Northumbria Healthcare had fewer than 10% waiting more than four hours. NHS England said plans were being put in place to support struggling trusts. The BBC analysis of published waiting times figures comes as the NHS is nearing the end of its worst winter since since records began nearly 20 years ago. There have been delays across the emergency care system with both ambulances and A&Es struggling, but the impact of those delays has not been felt evenly across the country. The chance of waiting more than four hours at A&E in the, worst, in, the, in the 10 worst performing trusts was at least five times greater than it was at the best. The research is based on information from the trusts submitting data on four-hour waitings. 14 services do not, as they are piloting new ways of measuring performance for the government. Gail Fisher, 68, is one of many patients who faced a long wait at Shrewsbury and Telford NHS Trust over the winter. She went into A&E with her husband when she became ill with a chest infection. They waited more than 10 hours to be seen. Mr Fisher was full of praise for the heroic staff who were so clearly overstretched. But he added, A&E was totally full and and squalid. The conditions were, were more like a war zone. Shrewsbury and Telford NHS Trust said it could not comment on individual cases but added it was sorry for the long waits experienced by patients. But it is not just the wait in A&E that have proved to be problematic this winter. Outside hospitals, ambulance crews have faced delays handling over patients to A&E staff, while patients who have been seen in A&E and need to be admitted to a ward for further care, by their nature the very freeliest, have been forced to endure further long waits to get a bed. The contrasting fortunes of the best and worst performancing trusts, Northumbria and Hull, illustrate the the challenges being faced and perhaps the solutions for the future. Both have experienced ambulances queuing outside the A&E departments, but once inside, Northumbria has been able to treat and, if needed, admit patients much more quickly. Crucial to Northumbria's success is the fact it is an integrated trust running both hospitals and community services. This has allowed it to, be, to better plan care for, to, uh, for patients, discharging them quickly when they do not need to stay in hospital because the trust is in charge of their care once they leave. The joined-up approach has also led to the creation of a dedicated emergency care site where senior A&E doctors are available 24-7 to make quick decisions about patients who are coming in. In Hull, the trust is set up under the traditional model. It runs the local hospitals while community services are delivered by other organisations. Chief Medical Officer Professor Makani Purva said the trust was working hard with its community and local authority partners to coordinate care. But he said every, every day this winter there had been the equivalent of eight hospital wards full of patients who no longer needed to be there but could not be discharged until community support was in place. This had an impact on how quickly patients coming in the front door could be seen. Our emergency department has been under intense pressure. We apologise to patients waiting too long to be seen and those facing delays in admission, he said. 
Creating more integration between community and hospital services is one of the key focuses of the government and NHS England to help improve performance. This winter, that has led to extra funds being made available to support hospitals to discharge patients, recruit more call handlers and open extra beds, while a two-year plan to improve A&E performance has recently been published. An NHS England spokeswoman said, There is no doubt that hospitals have experienced significant demand for emergency care this, this, this winter. But she said performance had begun to improve, which NHS bosses would now look to build on. Lucy Ansari, National Director of Health Watch England, agreed there had been signs of progress in recent weeks. But she felt there's, there's still a long way to go and said the government and NHS England needed to go further and be more ambitious to help hospitals get back to see 95% of patients within four hours. So um, that is the current update on, on the NHS and on the A&E um, uh, uh, waiting time. Mm. Um, and obviously we understand that um, all the, the, the all the heroes, our NHS heroes that are working there, the doctors, the nurses, the whole staff, um, they're, they're going through a lot as well at the same time. Uh, they're, they're understaffed and they're working in, uh, they're, they're doing their over hours and, and working very hard to help everyone in need. But at the same time, um, they're also suffering, which is also hard for them. And it's hard for us yeah. as patients that are entering the, the A&E. Mm -hmm. So um, please do try to, to for, for all our dear listeners, that if you for any reason do have to visit A&E, please do try to be patient. Um, while being seen and expect long delays um, and and but hopefully you will be seen and, and there will be a cure for whatever reason you're going into any and may God always protect you all Amen Amen um, yeah uh, I mean it's uh, it is it is quite worrying um, and it, it is quite difficult as well I mean whenever you you something happens to either yourself or a loved one someone yeah. which is close to you a family member whoever it might be um, and you feel as if you need to go to 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 A and E, um, then it's 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 just it's just a bit long, isn't it, to say the least? I mean, you in your head you're already expecting that. Uh, oh, okay, Chalo, let me let me go at, uh, in the evening. I'll go after work or whatever. Yeah. Um, I'll go about I don't know what nine ten o'clock after yeah. dinner and stuff. Um, and then you you expect it's in in the back of your head that you know you're going to be there till the morning, um, and it's that's just how it is, isn't it? I mean, it's 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 an emergency ward, and uh, it the it should be much quicker. And you see, uh, if you go there yourself, or you'll you'll hear from uh, people who have witnessed um, the the scenes, the horrific scenes, I should say, um, from within the A and E. Like you said, it's uh, it's it's kind of like a or I think we read it through the. Um, in the front page headlines as well, that it's kind of like a battlefield, um, oh, yeah. a war zone, yeah. And it is it is uh, very difficult. Like you said, they are understaffed um, and there are uh, various reasons behind this. Um, but nonetheless, uh, work does need to be done to, 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 to up the game over there. Um, so so and and to change the mindset as well. We 
of course, we expect the delays and we expect to be seen, I don't know, four or five hours later. But uh, there, there really needs to be do, uh, uh, something really needs to be done um, in order to crack down this issue and uh, and really speed up the process, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like you said, the first thing that comes to mind uh, when someone's ill is, oh, we're going to be stuck in, exactly. in, in, the, in the A&E. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know it's happened... With, uh, with with my nephew and nieces when, mm-hmm. when when they need to go for some emergency, yeah, the first thing that comes to mind is oh, um, like how long is it going to take? Yeah, what's going to happen? Exactly, who's going to go with them? Everyone's got to go work in the morning. Yeah, um, but obviously uh, health is wealth, so uh, it doesn't matter. You have to go. You have to go. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and with that, we're going to be moving uh, to our first main topic for the day. Um, just a quick reminder for you, we are talking about um, uh, the, the first hour is going to be in regards to in sickness and in health, um, how to keep your loving, uh, uh, how to keep loving your life partner. Um, and in the second segment, we're going to be speaking about weddings around the world, love in different cultures and faith. Um, of course, it, it being the 14th of February, uh, we're going to be d- discussing um, these topics which are somewhat related to Valentine's Day as well. And I thought I'd begin by ex- explaining um, what love really is. I mean, and I can see this from uh, an article online as well. The love is a set of emotions and behaviors characterized by intimacy, passion and commitment. It involves care, closeness, protectiveness, attraction, affection, and trust. Love can vary in intensity and can change over time. It is associated with a range of positive emotions, including happiness, excitement, life, satisfaction, and euphoria. But it can also result in negative emotions such as jealousy and stress. And Mubaras, before we get into this uh, this 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 main uh, topic for the day, I mean, something that we also need to understand is that when it comes to love, some people would say it is one of the most important human emotions. Yet, despite being one of the most studied behaviors, it's actually, believe it or not, the least understood. For example, researchers debate whether love is a biological or cultural phenomenon. But love, uh, of course, as we know, is most likely influenced by both biology and culture. Although hormones and biology are important, the way we express and experience love is also influenced by our personal conceptions of love. Um, um, and being Valentine's Day, it seems somewhat beneficial to discuss and acknowledge how people in long-term relationships may be struggling ever so slightly to carry on. And that's why in today's show, uh, we will be exploring how to maintain these relationships and appreciate our significant other even more. So, I mean, Mubaraz, what is this all about? Why might couples be struggling nowadays in long-term relationships and marriages? Um, do you think maybe it's a cultural issue or is it an issue that has persisted through time? Um, I mean, um, they are changing uh, cultural norms and values nowadays, right? Mm-hmm. Um, modern society is, is very much different from that of uh, previous generations. Uh, people today have have a lot more different options. They have more freedom, uh, more um, access to information, which can can it can affect the way they, they they view relationships and the expectations they have of their partners. Obviously, um, another thing which can 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 lead 
to um, um, difficulties uh, in in long term relationships and marriages is is stressful uh, lifestyles. Um, nowadays, everyone has uh, they have uh, busy schedules. You know, there's all types of financial pressures, and work life balance can take a toll on relationships. It's easy for couples to become uh, distant and disconnected from each other when they are uh, constantly um, juggling multiple responsibilities. Um, then there's the fact of, of lack of communication as well. Um, basically, if if there's uh, inadequate communication or uh, if you're not expressing yourself honestly, uh, it can create uh, misunderstandings. It can create resentment and, and then obviously there will be a distance between you guys. Um, then that will lead to unmet expectations, frustrations, and personal issues can go unaddressed if both parties don't communicate effectively. Yeah. Um, but then we also have, sorry, we also have um, personality differences. Yeah. Um, I mean, every person is unique. Um, every person will have different expectations, uh, different values, different habits, and preferences can cause challenges in a long-term relationship. And um, I mean, in regards to that, um, there's there is a um, there is a teaching of of the Holy Prophet. Is the saying of the Holy Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of of Allah be upon him. He said that the most disliked of of all the lawful things in the sight of Allah, the Almighty, is is divorce. So that brings us to the fact where if you're struggling and if you're having difficult uh, difficulties in in a marriage, the last resort is is a divorce in a marriage, mm. um, because it is it is uh, frowned upon in Islam, basically. Yeah, uh, but as both the husband and the wife has have the right for that as well. Yeah, and His yeah. Holiness recently mentioned that as well, as well in his Friday sermon, um, just to to ensure that everyone is aware of this right that they have. But we will speak about this in a bit more detail in just a short while. Um, before we do so, we do have with us on the line our first guest for the show, Gur, uh, Gurpreet Singh, uh, who has been a counsellor at Relate since 2014 for individuals and couples. Besides uh, that, he runs his own counselling practice and training workshops. He has worked at organisations such as the Department of Health, ICL, CFM and Lockheed Martin. Uh, his journey with counselling started with a desire for self-exploration. Um, he joined the Relate Media team in June 2016 and is regularly quoted by national media as well. He's uh, married with two children, a son and a daughter. Uh, Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning and thank you for having me. You're very welcome and thank you for being with us today. Um, we're speaking about a very interesting topic, uh, very related to uh, the day today as well, the 14th of February, Valentine's Day. <clears throat> so the first question that we wanted to ask you was, in your experience, what are some common problems that couples face um, and what would be your advice to them as well? Uh, couples can... You know, the problems that they will face in the early part of their relationship can sometimes be different to what they will face at the later stages of their relationship. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, but often when we meet couples, because, you know, people have grown up in different families, people have grown up with different values, different way of doing things. You know, for example, somebody might like oatmeal with their breakfast and somebody else might like having like a full... Uh, English breakfast or something else or, you know, uh, you know, other things as well. So, you know, just a small argument over what to have for breakfast 
can result into a whole argument about values and other sorts of things. So uh, often, it, you know, like I said, it's different values, different ways of doing things. Uh, also communication, you know, what somebody says and what somebody hears can be two different things. And people don't, you know, get caught up in saying what is right and wrong, like my way is right and your way is wrong, versus trying to understand that there is no right or wrong and there are sometimes just two different ways of doing things. And it's about finding a compromise on how to agree to do it a common way. Most certainly, most certainly. And uh, would you uh, kindly shed some light on what cross-cultural couples uh, might encounter? But cross-cultural couples certainly have those same problems, but they're, you know, they come with additional dimensions of cultural differences. Mm-hmm. You know, and cultural differences can, in, you know, uh, can be found in various different ways. For example, you know, uh, somebody growing up in the Western community might have a, you know, might be very punctual and always turn up on time, and somebody from a different country, you know, South Asian countries or, you know, even some of the Latin countries might have a very flexible relationship with time and might think that it's okay to turn up a little bit late. Now, those, you know, on the face of it, that's not a big argument, but if you add it to other dimensions, it actually creates massive problems for a couple to agree on how to do things. You know, for for example, if they're going somewhere, the person who's grown up in the Western world will want to leave very punctually on time. The person who's grown up in, let's say, in one of the South Asian cultures will want to leave, hey, you know, when you said 9 o'clock, I thought you meant 9, 9.30. Yeah. And that can create a whole big argument. So cross-culture, again, you know, now what is right? Should you leave at 9 or should you leave at 9.30? There is no right answer here. It is mm-hmm. the time that you will agree. You know, and as long as you can agree it, then that sort of creates and paves the way for a successful couple relationship. But if you can't agree it and you get caught up in, agreeing to, you know, one person says, you're going to do it my way, the other person says, no, you're going to do it my way, then you end up in big arguments over time and then they grow. And arguments that don't get resolved, you know, not like, you know, by resolve, I don't mean you know, uh, like we finish it today and we'll argue again tomorrow. Not like that. The resolution means you find a common way to do things and you resolve the argument on what, for example, on what time to leave. And then you have a way of working with it. So when you resolve an argument, then the argument finishes and then you can have a happy relationship. But often, you know, in in our work with couples, we find that arguments don't get resolved. So they will argue about the same thing over and over and over again. Mm. So the same argument will happen not just about what time to leave for functions, but what time to leave for socializing, what time to leave to go to, to, you know, to somebody's house or anything like that. All these arguments tend to come up again and again, but in different places. Mm. So then how do you define um, happiness? How can couples maintain such happiness in their relationships then? Most couples will, you know, over their, you know, let's say somebody's been, you know, a couple have been together for like 15, 20 years. What you often find is that people will grow apart and then together again. So after a period of time, they go and, you know, they will go a little, you know, they will start to irritate each other a little bit and then they will grow together again. And as they go through the years, those variations become smaller and smaller. Mm. And people learn to find a common, you know, common way of doing things. As long as you keep resolving your arguments and you find a common way of doing things, then the couple will become happier over time. But what, like I said, what happens is 
if you get caught up in my way is the right way and your way is the wrong way, that is either going to irritate you and make you unhappy or it's going to irritate and make the other person unhappy or both. Mm. You know, so happiness is found through achieving common goals, having, you know, developing common values, developing common ways of doing things. I I say that lightly, but it's actually quite a difficult task, you know, because yeah. sometimes people have quite a lot of differences and differences take navigating. Yeah, yeah. Um, Gurpreet, can, can you, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, could you please enlighten us, enlighten us on the on the counselling services you offer, uh, particularly how relationship counselling can can break a couple uh, argument cycle and and your relationship toolkit. So uh, you know, obviously, you know, nobody is objective to their own life. You know, I'm I'm not objective to my life, and nobody else is objective to their life. We live a subjective life, which means we live in our lives, and sometimes it's difficult to see what is going wrong, you know, from our own point of view. So what counseling does is counseling brings an independent person who's skilled at at helping you resolve the argument, but is also not biased in anyone's favor. So when I work with a couple, I'm not biased in anyone's favor. I'm only trying to help their relationship work. So what that does is it gives them the benefit of, you know, airing their concerns, having someone else kind of help them see the other person's point of view and try and develop a good relationship. So my, you know, when, when I work with couples, I normally help them resolve one or two arguments. Once I've done that, then, you know, normally they find their own way with the rest of the arguments. So I don't need to resolve every single argument. I just need to help them see some, you know, that actually the other person is not wrong and it's just a case of finding a common way together. Mm-hmm. So when they come to work with us, that's what you can expect. And, you know, obviously we have tools, we have lots of uh, skills that we can use to help a couple bridge their relationship. Mm. Sometimes it's all about that intervention, isn't it? I mean, obviously they have the best intentions in mind, both the the husband and wife, both couples, uh, both both partners rather. But uh, it's it's a matter of sometimes, uh, well, a lot of times ego as well um, and just not understanding where the other person is coming from. And once you have that counsellor, once you have that third person to just intervene and, and just, uh, just, just clear the air between them, I think that makes a huge difference, isn't it? It does. I mean, you know, it, it is amazing how much difference you can make to a couple and if they just abandon their position of being right. Yeah. You know, if they just abandon their position of being right, and they listen to the other person on what they're saying and try to find common ground, so many problems in the couple relationship can be eliminated. Certainly, most certainly. Um, Jazakala, thank you for that, um, uh, Gurpreet Singh, for for being with us, for answering our questions and and sharing your your, your wonderful insight uh, in regards to this most uh, important topic uh, that, that we're talking about today as well. Thank you once again, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. That was Gurpreet Singh, uh, who has been a counsellor at Relate since 2014 for individuals and couples. Besides that, he runs his own counselling practice and training workshops. He has worked with uh, at organisations such as the Department of Health, ICL, CFM and Lockheed Martin. 
His journey with counselling started with a desire for self-exploration um, and he joined the Relate Media team in June 2016 and is regularly quoted by national media outlets as well. And like I mentioned earlier, he's married with two children, a son and a daughter. Um, we're going to be, uh, well, we spoke uh, to Professor Victor Karandashev um, earlier on um, and we're going to be listening to that interview now. And uh, just so uh, for the benefit of our listeners, um uh, professor uh, Victor is a professor of psychology at the Aquinas College, uh, Michigan. He is a scholar with extensive exten- uh, international and uh, cross um, cultural experience uh, and interests. He has conducted research on inter- international psychology in several European countries, including universities in Germany, Norway, Russia, Sweden, Switzerland, and over here in the UK as well. He was a visiting professor and a Fulbright scholar in the US. Um, he uh, co-edited three volumes of teaching psychology around the world, 2007, 2009 and 12. His major area of research interest in, uh, is the studies of love and culture, a topic about which he ha- published several articles, chapters and monographs. Victor's recent books are among the most distinguished uh, in uh, interdisciplinary contributions to the field. And this is the interview that we had with him. What is love? And how universal or culturally specific is the concept of love? Thank you for your question. Love is an abstract word which appeared in the lexicon of many languages quite late in cultural history, only in the recent couple of centuries. Many historical and modern culture across the world didn't have uh, the word uh, for love. For example, in English language, people in the past used such words as passion, affection, caring, and compassion. Here is another example. The ethnic Tibetan uh, group uh, Nimba, living in the northwest Nepal, doesn't have a single word which is used for both parental and sexual love. Instead, they use one word for compassionate love, parental love and similar feeling toward the weak and dependent people in another word for sexual love and uh, sexual desire. Here is another example. People in the tribe of Inuit called the Utku in northern Canada have no exact equivalent for the word love. Instead, they have two words. One is uh, the word for love uh, for those who need protection, such as babies, puppies, and the sick people. Another is the word for love for those who are charming and admired. There is diversity of love lexicon in uh, multilingual culture of South Asia, including Persian, Arabic, Bengali, and Sanskrit languages. They have a variety of words, meaning diverse aspects of love. The Persian word ishq means passionate love. This word is also widely used in other languages of the Muslim world, such uh, as Arabic, Urdu and Turkish, in varying meaning. Linguistic studies have shown that various languages have many words associated with love feelings, attitudes and actions. Speaking of words for love in different languages, would you kindly enlighten us on universal metaphors in a lexicon of love? It is a very good question. Many cultural lexicons have used metaphors to express love in the diversity of its meaning. 
These cultural metaphors reflect some typical feelings that people experience when they love someone. Metaphorical lexicon help us better grasp what love is. For example, many men and women experience romantic love as strong and passionate feelings. Accordingly, many languages have metaphor expressing love, such as power, natural force, fire, heat, and water. People experience this heat and warm feeling in their body, therefore there are many body metaphors of love. Here are some metaphorical expressions of this kind. I was magnetically drawn to her. Another one. He swept me off, the, off my feet. Another one. Waves of passion came, to, to, uh, came over me. One more. I am burning with love. One more. Looking at her, I was flooded by love. Another one. She was overflowing with love. One more. I was carried away by love. I want to say that these kinds of metaphor of love as a power, natural force, fire and water are present across many languages and culture. They are cross-culturally universal. A Hungarian linguist Zoltan Kovacs presented many metaphors of love. For example, love as a journey, example, has been a long bumpy road. Another, love as a unity of parts. We are as one. Uh, we, we fuse together. We are in separate. Another metaphor is love as disease. I'm heart sick, or I'm crazy about you. In view of your book, Cross-Cultural Perspectives on the Experience and Expression of Love, how do people in different cultures conceptualize love, and how might this affect experience and expression in a cross-cultural relationship? Thank you. It is a very interesting question. Despite the diversity of expression, people in different cultures define love quite similar. Australian linguist Anna Virzbika has demonstrated that love lexicons in many cultures and languages are quite different. Nevertheless, all cultures and languages are capable to communicate some very general meaning of love. This most general and essential meaning of any love is bringing and doing something good for someone else. This meaning of love is the same all of, all, uh, in all cultures. And different cultures and religions convey this meaning in their understanding of love. For example, American religious scholar John Templeton explored the concept of agape. It is the selfless love for others. John Templeton showed that the concept of agape, love, is presented in the teaching of all world religions. So these religions are similar in their core understanding of what love is. However, different societies can emphasize different characteristics of love. For example, American anthropologist Victor de Munch discovered that people in Russian and Lithuanian culture believe that love is an unreal fairy tale and they expect that love at some point comes to an end. Or love can transfer to a more realistic and enduring relationship. 
On the other hand, Americans believe in practical love and emphasize friendship in love rather than romantic feelings. Cultures also differ in the expression of love. Many Western individualistic cultures tend to be overly expressive in love, while Eastern cultures tend to be more reserved in their expressions of love. This discrepancy in understanding of love can cause misunderstanding of partners in intercultural relationships. In light of your titles Cultural Typologies of Love and Cultural Models of Emotions, what processes are at play, particularly cultural parameters, in the evolution of love? Thank you. I want to say that cultural evolution of love in history have the two driving force. Desire for the freedom in love, on the one hand, and understanding of responsibility in love, on another hand. Men and women in the past wanted uh, to be free in love but couldn't afford this freedom because of limited social affordances and their strong feelings of social responsibility. Throughout centuries, social evolution changed the balance between freedom and social responsibility. The value of freedom increased. Personal freedom started to play more important role in life of people and in love. Several cultural parameters played role in this cultural evolution. Among those are the increased social mobility of people, urbanization of social life, higher economic independence of people, the discovery of effective contraceptives, the increased role of modern individualism and uh, compared to traditional collectivism of societies. If to say briefly, on the one hand, traditional collectivistic and interdependent societies stress the importance of responsibility in love. On the other hand, modern individualistic and independent societies stress the importance of freedom in love. So, whilst we're on the topic of the evolution of love, considering your book Romantic Love in Cultural Contexts, that you mentioned earlier as well, what is the relationship between romantic love and marriage in human history and across contemporary cultures? Yes, the relationship between love and marriage were different in different historical periods. In the early history, love and marriage were alien to each other. Marriage was a social and practical institution, while love, uh, romantic love, was a dream and fairy tale. So arranged marriage were typical in many societies. The cases of love marriage were rare. By the middle of the 20th century, love finally conquered marriage in many modern Western society. Love marriage became the common cultural practices. However, it was not, it was not the case in many traditional collectivistic societies of the 20th century. However, later in the 20th century, love marriage marriages lost their popularity. Many men and women in modern Western societies prefer to live without marital registra registration of their relationship. Cohabitation became quite widespread among partners. And that was uh, the discussion that we had uh, with Professor Viktor Karandeshev. Uh, sharing his uh, his insight uh, for us in regards to this uh, important topic. Don't go anywhere. Join us after the 8 o'clock news. With so many attacks on Islam and the Holy Prophet wasallam, let's set the record straight. He was a man of peace. 
He went through 13 long years of persecution for his beliefs. He was mocked and ridiculed, but he didn't retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he went to Taif to spread the message of Islam, he was pelted with stones until he was bleeding. Yet he did not retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he migrated to Medina, he established the Charter of Medina, allowing the Jews, Christians and Muslims to live together in harmony with full religious freedom because he was a man of peace. And after all the oppression that he faced, when he returned to Mecca as a king, he had the right and the power to punish every single one of them. Yet he forgave them because he was a man of peace. The Holy Prophet said that no white man is superior to a black man, no Arab to a non-Arab. Rather, everyone is equal. He freed slaves and taught to treat them as brothers. He did all of this because he was sent as the Rahmatul Lil Alameen, a mercy for mankind. Indeed, the Holy Prophet was a true man of peace. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to The Breakfast Show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. Just a quick time check for you. It is four minutes past eight on Tuesday, the 14th of February, 2023. And if you are just tuning in, um, this date uh, should be an indicator to you for what we are talking about today. The 14th of Feb, Valentine's Day, we're speaking about uh, couples, how to make sure we can stay together, we can have a healthy relationship. Um, and in our second segment, we're going to be speaking about a very related topic as well. Um, and that is, uh, of course, in regards to uh, what we can do to uh, what we can see uh, when it comes to weddings around the world, love in different cultures and in different faiths as well. Um, before we get into that topic, we can see from the Holy Quran, chapter 2, verse 229, in uh, Allah the Almighty stated that uh, it is a, a part of a longer verse and it, it states that, and they, uh, referring to the women, have rights similar to those of men um, over them in equity, but men have a rank above them. If you look at this verse uh, and we actually ponder upon what it what it means, God tells us that as far as personal rights are concerned, women and men are equal. But in some matters, a husband has the final say because of the responsibilities that men have. But a very important point that needs to be understood is that immediately after granting this right to men, God Almighty warns men and reminds them that he is mighty. The, this reiterates the fact that the husband is not free to use the authority as he pleases, but he will be held accountable for any unjust actions. Um, and so that is something which definitely needs to keep be kept in mind as well. When, when it comes to uh, relationships, and we spoke about this with our first guest as well, something which we really need to help each other with and appreciate uh, our partners, um, a way in which we can do this is, of course, through communication. We need to express appreciation and affection. There needs to be a level of patience and forgiveness as well. There, obviously, there needs to be some kind of tolerance there. Um, and another verse of the Holy Quran, which I'd like to uh, quote for the benefit of our listeners, is uh, the, uh, from the same chapter, the second chapter of the Holy Quran, but this is verse 188 this time. And the Almighty states that they are a garment for you and you are a garment for them. 
Um, and Mubarak, of course, we can see that there's so many different uh, things that we can uh, take out from this verse. We can see that when it comes to a, a garment, a piece of clothing, clothing is, of course, worn for protection, adornment and to hide defects. And in the same way, man and woman, excuse me, should protect each other's honor and morals and make each other feel secure with love, support and understanding. They should keep each other's secrets and should not air each other's uh, uh, shortcomings in public. When God declares each of them to be a garment for the other, he wishes it to be known how they should discharge their duties towards each other, which uh, um, are f- uh, as follows. I'll mention just a quick uh, two or three of them to cover up another's weaknesses and shortcomings from others, to act as an adornment and embellishment for one another. And just as clothes protect us from the severity uh, of the weather, um, so in the same way, the, uh, the wife and the husband should stick fast to each other through thick and thin. Um, and at no times should they fall apart in adverse circumstances, and each should serve as a rock to support the other. Um, what is, I mean, there's, there's so much more that we can talk about uh, when it comes to this topic, isn't it? There's so many narrations of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Um, and of course, we've we've mentioned uh, verses as well. One thing which we which we would like to shed some light upon is, of course, today is the 14th of February and a lot of partners will be spending a bit more time with one another, maybe giving gifts to one another and celebrating in other ways as well, uh, going out for dinner, etc. as well. Um, what do you feel? Is this something which comes once a year uh, or maybe along with anniversary, maybe this is one or two days in the year in which we should uh, spend this quality time with our partners or maybe, I mean, I don't know. What, what do you think? I mean, if we look at... Um if you look at uh, how many days a year we would celebrate something uh, special, it would be what Valentine's Day, um, um, anniversary. Yeah. Um, you can add different types of anniversaries in there. Let's, people do do like some some um, some milestones, some milestones whatever, in between right? themselves, yeah. right? So let's give another two three days for, to that. Mm-hmm. Then we can add. Um, uh, birthdays for both for for for, for both uh, yeah. each of the couple. Yeah. Um, maximum six seven days. Then maybe you can add in Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, or then you have uh, other holidays like Eid or something. Yeah. Uh, maximum, let's say, there's about ten days where you're gonna actually celebrate uh, something on a larger scale. Um, but no, obviously that's that's not the meaning of love that you only celebrate on on ten days a year maximum, right? Mm. Um, we should we should. Uh, we should incorporate such lifestyles where we are having special days regularly uh, with our loved ones, with our with our partner. Um, so there are a few few things that we can do. For example, you can uh, set aside some some quality time. Um, you know, each couple should make it a priority to spend quality time uh, with with their partner on a regular basis. Um, that could be anything from from taking a walk, going on a date, uh, or maybe cooking or, or watching a movie or series together. Right. Yeah. Um, there could be there could be other intellectual stuff in which you, um, I don't know, maybe going uh, to to a, a book club some or, or a theater or um, something more productive. Yeah. Uh, pottery classes or or many more classes that you can join. Um, then you can obviously incorporate small habits into your daily routines. 
um, you know, regularly expressing gratitude, doing small things to show affection and communicating openly. They can it can become a, a, a natural part of your relationship when it's practiced uh, consistently. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would like to mention that um, um, that um, Aisha, the, the 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 wife of of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of of Allah be upon him. Um, she was asked whether the Holy Prophet did some household chores or not, and her replies was. Um, yes, of course, the Holy Prophet would mend his shoe and when needed, or saw his clothes if, if, if they required um, uh, repair and live just like you live in your homes. Um, and as Muslims, um, the, the Holy Prophet is, he is um, the biggest example and role model for us. And if he was um, taking time out to do his chores around the house, it's important for us as well to find some sort of a... Um, a ground level where we are uh, helping as well. Another thing is just don't take each other for granted. Um, remember that each day is an opportunity to appreciate your partner and to show them love. Uh, rather than waiting for, for these special occasions to express affection, it's best to continue throughout the whole year. Um, I mean, the the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community, uh, His Holiness Mirza uh, Ghulam Ahmed, the Promised Messiah, um, he said that the relationship between a husband and wife should be as between two true and sincere friends. Mm -hmm. So just as two friends um, would sit down and talk every every day, uh, I mean, I know we do um, with our own friends. Uh, we'll have a quick chat every other day or every day at least. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe have a quick coffee together or have a have a tea together, or um, you know, talk about uh, current affairs. It's important that you carry on these kind of discussions with your partners as well, yeah. so that um, you know it, you are able to stay the the friends that are partners that the partners should be. Yeah, definitely, definitely. We'll we will be speaking more about what Islam teaches us uh, in this regard in just a short while. Of course, there's so much to get through uh, today as well. A, a, a very important topic to say the least. Um, but before we do so, we do have with us on the line our next guest for the show, Dr. Corinne Reese. Um, uh, who is an assistant professor of social anthropology at the University of uh, Bayreuth in Germany. She is a co-editor of the book Marriage in Past, Present and Future Tense and author of the book Pandemic Kinship, Families, Intervention and Social Change in Botswana's Time of AIDS. She conducts research on families in Bots uh, Botswana, uh, Southern Africa. Assalamu peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Thanks very much for having me. You're very welcome and thank you for being with us today. Um, could you start off, please, uh, by telling us uh, uh, and defining social anthropology uh, and briefly describing Southeast District Botswana, where it is and its current state, particularly with regards to HIV and AIDS? How did you conduct research to explore changes um, in Botswanian marriage? Sure, yeah. So social anthropology, for the, for those who don't know, uh, is a social science, and it involves the comparative study of contemporary societies and cultures around the world. Um, so we go about looking at how people live their actual everyday lives as a way of trying to understand global issues, but always also sort of what it is to be human. Um, and most of us as anthropologists, we sort of specialize in one or two places in, in the world where we learn the language, we build up long-term relationships. And in my case, that's in Botswana. 
um, which is a landlocked country. It's right in the middle of southern Africa, so just north of South Africa, squeezed between uh, Zambia, Zimbabwe, and Namibia. Um, and it's, I mean, they often call Botswana Africa's miracle um, because it's had a great deal of success with state-led development. They're very famous for their diamond production. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same, at the same time, uh, they've been hammered, um, arguably worse than any other country in the world by HIV-AIDS for, for over 40 years now. Um, and it continues to be uh, a major problem, continues to have very high rates um, of HIV infection in the country, um, although at the same time they've had a brilliant public health response, so there's very good access to uh, antiretroviral treatment and, and, um, and that sort of thing. Uh, of course, since then, you know, we've had new pandemics um, sort of move to center stage. But, yeah, Botswana has been, you know, learning to live love in the presence of, you know, what is a mortal threat um, for, for many, many decades, which is one reason I find it so interesting. Um, but, yeah, as for conducting research um, on changes in marriage, we, we, what anthropologists do is we get stuck in. Mm-hmm. So we spend an awful lot of time just doing stuff with people. Um, we call it participant observation, um, but it's a matter of, of living with people as, as they're kind of moving through their lives um, and seeing the world from their perspective. So really trying to understand you know, how, how people understand what they're doing themselves. So in this case, it, you know, I spend a lot of time in weddings, <laughs> chopping mm-hmm. cabbage, you know, driving people around, um, meet, endless meetings, negotiation meetings and planning meetings. But also a lot of time, you know, chatting with people about their own marriages, uh, about their parents' marriages, about what they remember of other other friends' marriages and marriages they saw growing up. Um, so yeah, oh, and and also working through the public discourse, you know, what you find on social media and the newspapers, uh, because marriage yeah, in many places, um, like like love as such, is a thing that fascinates all of us. So people kind of constantly commenting on it, and reflecting on it. So yeah, that that's part of what we do too. So how do um, marriages come about over there? You know, in in, in light of your book, mm. uh, Pandemic Kinship, how can marriage bring together property, legal, economic and family issues? Yeah, it's a, that, that's a big question that I'm <laughs> sure a lot of your listeners can imagine their own experiences. Mm. Um, marriages in Botswana actually come about with a great deal of difficulty <laughs> and over a very long time. Um, so, it, you know, it usually starts with the standard boy meets girl story. Mm. Arranged marriages are, are not really a thing in Botswana, um, and of course, gay marriage is not yet uh, legalized. Mm. Um, so it starts there, but then it's very common for people to live together for years, often to have kids, um, before they even start thinking about marriage. Um, partly because when it comes time you know, that you want to marry, then everybody has to get involved. So the groom's family has to go and talk to the, the bride's family, and they have to negotiate back and forth about uh, bride wealth, which is paid from the man's family to the wife's family, right. um, about the dates for the wedding and all, you know, what the wedding should look like, what, what should be included, and all of that sort of thing. Um, and this can take months and months and months <laughs> and cost a huge amount of money, too. So it, 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 it takes a very long time. Um, and, yeah, some people just sort of, you know, don't bother so, um, so because I- of the hassle. Yeah. yeah so, 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 in light of that, what actually makes a, a Bos- Boswanian wedding? Um, you know, like some key traditions mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. how to dress. Yeah, the, in fact, that's a, a subject of kind of hot debate. Sort of what counts as a proper wedding or, or marriage. The the two traditional con- constituents. One is is bride wealth itself, as I just mentioned, um, and that usually is sort of imagined in terms of cattle. So you would pay twelve cattle 
um, for a bride as well as clothes and cash and that sort of thing. Um, and then the other is, is, a, is a, a thing called Pato, which is a sort of gender segregated, very secretive event where the men give advice to the groom and women give advice to the bride on how to behave as a married couple. And nobody who's not married is allowed anywhere near the event. They're not allowed to hear the advice that each other gets. It's a, it's a sort of kind of secretive moment. Okay. But then for younger people these days, of course, they, you know, they, they're more keen on uh, the big celebrations church weddings, the predominantly Christian country, um, but also big feasts um, that can be incredibly lavish with, you know, huge groups of uh, kind of cars all decorated, moving through the villages, um, several changes of costume, of outfit. So people will have three or four um, outfits tailored for their weddings in different styles, uh, choreographed dances, you know, for everybody who comes, and feasts for sort of, you know, two, three, four hundred people. Um, so... It can, it can be quite a production. And sometimes it can happen over, you know, a couple of weeks. Sometimes it takes, again, months and months for all of these events uh, to pan out. So, yeah, it looks different for every sounds, different person. Sounds very interesting and fun at the same time. Mm, absolutely. Lots yeah. of good food also. <laughs> um, considering your, your co-authored book, Marriage in Past, Present and Future Tense, what are the wider mm. social, political and, and legal implications of change in marriage over time? Mm, this is, yeah, this is, again, I think, what people are most concerned with. And you find it all over the world, right? Because we get really worried with, what does it mean if marriage is changing? Um, how is it changing? And people read it in two ways in Southern Africa. On one hand, there's a lot of concern that fewer and fewer people are able to marry because it gets so expensive to have these very fancy sort of lavish feasts. And, you know, they feel it becomes an exclusive thing that's only for the sort of upper middle classes and that it's stratifying, you know, society, and not everybody has access to it. Um, and there's a lot of concern then that there's sort of, you know, broader social breakdown because people aren't in solid families. Um, but at the same time, what, what we sort of actually see on the ground is surprising because people get super creative with how to get married in these contexts. They find all sorts of kind of clever shortcuts. You find women, for example, now paying for their own bride wealth if their men can't afford it, um, or negotiating with friends and family to pull the money together so that, you know, their parents aren't under pressure. Mm. And yeah, the impression, the impression that we've had is that this seems to happen a lot in times of real crisis. So things like the pandemic, financial crisis, the sort of overlapping crises we're all living with at the moment, a lot of people seem to try and engage those and, you know, make their own kind of social change um, through marriage and intimate relationships. You know, there's it's not just a private matter between two people, but mm. between their families and also, you know, but their vision of, of what society should look like, or what they want it to look like. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, uh, Dr. Reese, uh, for the benefit of our mm. listeners, would you kindly uh, shed some light on your um, co-produced exhibition, A Global Anthropology of, of Transforming Marriage, uh, mm. An Anthropology of Weddings, Five Places, Fifty Objects? Yes, yeah. So a global anthropology of transforming marriage was the, the group research project that I was part of. Uh, it was funded by the European Research Council, mm. held at the University of Edinburgh. And yeah, we, we uh, produced a public exhibition from all five of the places in which we conducted research. So I was in Botswana. My colleagues were in Malaysia, in Greece, in the southern United States and in Taiwan. 
Um, so across all of those places, we gathered a number of objects together, which were uh, initially on display at the Edinburgh Central Library. But now you can see them online um, at anthropologyofweddings.org.uk. Some very vivid photos also of weddings and marriage and how they're practiced in all of these different contexts. And some short sort of explanations um, of yeah, what these rituals are, what the dress means, and, and also the ways that marriage is changing and creating change in all of those contexts. So it's all there online still. It has a perpetual life <laughs> in, in the Internet. So, mm. yeah, I absolutely encourage people to have a look if they're curious about what marriage uh, and love and intimate relationships look like elsewhere in the world. And hopefully that will um, be very interesting for, for our listeners as well to visit the website. Dr. Corinne yeah. Rees, uh, thank you very much for joining us here at the Voice of Islam radio at The Breakfast Show. Um, it was uh, a delight to have you and hopefully we can have you again. And um, all good luck uh, for you with, with, with all your work in the future. Wonderful, thanks and have a happy Valentine's Day. Thank you. All right, bye now. Thank you. Bye bye. Zero to zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. Uh, that was Dr. Corinne Rees, who is an assistant professor of uh, social anthropology at the University of Bayreuth in Germany. She is a co-editor of the book Marriage and Past, Present and Future Tense, and author of the book Pandemic Kinship: Families, Intervention, and Social Change in Botswana's Times Time of AIDS. Uh, she conducts research on families in Botswana, uh, Southern Africa, as we saw from or heard from that discussion over there as well and uh, obviously uh, while speaking to her uh, you would have realised that we have moved on to our second segment which is very linked to the first so we didn't bother um, giving a, a an introduction to it as such but of course um, never should we miss an opportunity to embrace all the cultures around us and most importantly our own during the season where most couples are readdressing their love for each other we'll be taking a closer look at how the emotion concept of love is dealt with worldwide and how it brings two hearts and families together and that's why we were speaking about uh, Botswana as well and how their marriages take place and what are the sort of things which are linked um, with that as well um, we will be speaking about uh, in a bit more detail about what um, love is and of course what Islam teaches us in this regard in just a short while but before we do so we do have with us on the line our next guest for the show Dr. Ahsan Khan who is serving as the National Secretary for Matrimony uh, for the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community in the US he is an uh, ophthalmologist married with three kids and resides in Los Angeles California he also serves as Director of the Gift of Sight Program for Humanity First USA Assalamualaikum peace be upon you Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Peace be on you as well and thank you for having me. You're very welcome and Zakla, thank you for, for being with us today. Um, of course, we, uh, we mentioned uh, in your introduction that you are the Secretary for, for Matrimony. We, we call it Rishtanata within the, uh, within the community. Could you uh, enlighten our listeners a little bit about the purpose of Rishtanata, this, 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 uh, this um, Department of Matrimony and, and its roots as well, please? Uh, yes, sure, absolutely. So so, yes, as you said, uh, I'm serving as the Secretary for uh, Rishkanatha, or Matrimonial Affairs, uh, for the Ahmadi Muslim community here in the United States. I've uh, been doing that since 2019. So, you know, marriage is obviously a, a sacred institution in Islam. It's, uh, it was the practice of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of God be upon him. And so um, <clears throat> the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and its many members 
uh, the service that's provided to them through this department is to arrange for uh, for you know members of the community to find uh, suitable uh, matches. So, you know, when the Ahmadiyya Muslim community was started back in um, 1889 by the promised Messiah of the age, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad of uh in its infancy, the community was very small. But as it started to grow um, into the turn of the century, uh, there was a need for this growing group of Ahmadi Muslims uh, to find suitable partners who were also of the Ahmadi Muslim community. So, you know, a lot of these people, uh, they left their families and their faith and they joined the community. So they would need assistance. They would need um, help in finding a suitable match. And um, as our audience knows, Islam, uh, the practice of Islam promotes a arranged marriage. Uh, you know, there's it's, it's considered a transgression to... Um, to date or to have a relationship before marriage. And so uh, when you combine the, you know, requirements of the faith plus the need for for Ahmadi Muslims who are new to this religion, who do not know of other families uh, to find a match, um, it was suggested by a companion of the Promised Messiah that perhaps the, uh, the community can provide uh, or help in search, searching for matches. And so this suggestion was made, and the Promised Messiah, um, may, may peace be upon him, um, uh, adopted this uh, suggestion. And he himself uh, said that you know a, a book will be kept in secret in which the names of of, of boys and girls from the community uh, will be uh, will be kept, and um, you know involving the parents of these boys and girls and. Uh, you know, efforts will be made to find suitable matches. And as Islam teaches that whenever you search for a match, you put priority on good conduct and character um, and a tendency towards goodness above all other features or other aspects. And so uh, the Promised Messiah um, said that that would be the focus and that the community would make every effort to, to uh, record the names of these folks into a book that's kept in secret and help and find matches. And then you fast forward to, you know, over a century later, and now the Rishtanatha department has expanded, uh, you know, throughout the world, and it operates in every country under the guidance of the national president who who serves at the pleasure of His Holiness, um, uh, you know, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad, the Supreme Leader, Worldwide Leader of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community. And so... The United States has a Rishanatha department, just like the UK does in Germany and Pakistan and India and Indonesia and so forth. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Um, and uh, could you, you you've kind of, you've mentioned the the the, the sort of outline of uh, the matchmaking process as well. Um, what can one expect from uh, premarital counselling, which uh, which His Holiness um, over here in the in England, it started over a decade ago. It's been about thirteen fourteen years ago, uh, years now. Um, could you kindly uh, enlighten our listeners a little bit about why this takes place and and what are the sort of content uh, of this as well. Yes, absolutely. So, um, His Holiness uh, uh, started the uh, idea of premarital counseling, as you said, a decade ago in the UK, and it has since been adopted in most countries, including here in the United States. I think we started it back in 2014, so close to a decade ago. So, um, you know, when the nikah or the Islamic marriage happens, 
it's a union of husband and wife and a union really of, of two families. And, uh, you know, um, the institution of marriage is a very sacred one. It's, it's a very, uh, it's a, it's a great endeavor that's, that's undertaken by both sides and it's sort of uh, starting a new life together and navigating um, all the unknowns of that new life together, uh, you know, has its uh, pitfalls, it has its ups, it has its downs, and it has its challenges, and that's one of the the beauties and the mysteries of marriage that, uh, you know, when marriage is done with the right intentions and it's rooted in righteousness, then uh, it is our belief that marriage is a sacred union and it actually completes the faith of the spouse. That's a a teaching, a tradition of the Holy Prophet of Islam, may peace and blessings of God be upon him. But that being said, it, it, it can produce its challenges, and His Holiness recognized that, um, you know, if if a couple, if a husband and a wife are given some aspects of of counseling, in other words, they're they're uh, a missionary or an imam or maybe a scholar of the community, or even an experienced, you know, couple. Um, uh, can provide some element of counseling or premarital guidance to these families, the husband and wife to be along with their parents, then that education will prove to be valuable uh, on, you know, at, at, uh, on the, on the day of their nikah and then into their marriage. And so premarital counseling was adopted uh, under the instruction of his holiness and it's been widely successful. I can't speak to the UK, but I know, here in the United States, I mean, I know in, in the UK it's successful, but in terms of the United States, we do about 100 premarital counseling uh, sessions um, every year, um, and the feedback we send surveys have been very good. And in this in this premarital counseling, which typically takes a couple of hours, um, the the husband and wife um, will have a counseling session with the parents. It's usually done through uh, Skype or through some video platform if it can't be done in person. And usually it's one of the missionaries of our community who conducts it. And in there we talk about all aspects of, of marriage as rooted in Islam and all of the things to expect after marriage and the rights of the husband and the rights of the wife and how you're supposed to fulfill your duties. And basically all of the counseling session is rooted in the teachings of the Holy Quran, the practice of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of God be upon him. And then the teachings of the Promised Messiah and the, the Caliphs, um, His Holiness, our current spiritual leader, um, he has given many discourses and sermons on on matrimony and matrimonial matters. And in fact, that's actually been compiled by the, the Ladies' Auxiliary of the United Kingdom in a book called Domestic Issues and Their Solutions. And it's basically an, uh, a compilation of excerpts of His Holiness's commentary on marriage, and that's actually a book that we give as a gift from the matrimony Rishanatha department to every couple after they finish their counseling. And um, so, yeah, it's, 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 been, it's been very successful, and it's been a good initiative. Uh, perfect. And uh, when it comes to uh, this, people have this notion or this misconception when it comes to Islam and marriages within uh, the faith of Islam that uh, uh, forced marriages are something that uh, possibly we 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 recommend or we we do say that this is something that should happen. Of course, this isn't the case. But if you could sh- shed some light on this for the benefit of our listeners of whether or not forced marriages 
uh, is an Islamic thing or, or something completely different? Yes, no, that's a, that's a very uh, important distinction point to make that uh, forced marriage or compulsion, who you're going to marry, being coerced into marriage by somebody else has no place in Islam. Um, there's nothing in the in Islam or in the Holy Quran that teaches of that. And so uh, sometimes there's confusion because, you know, the term arranged marriage sometimes implies that it, it, it's not done through free will, and that's not the case. So what Islam says is that there's no promiscuity before marriage. You can't have, um, you know, um, in interminglings of genders and romance or secret paramours in chapter 5, verse 6 of the Holy Quran, uh, Allah commands Muslim and women that marriage is obviously allowed and you can marry who you want to marry, but the conditions are that there's no uh, relationship prior to marriage um, and and chastity is preserved up until marriage. Uh, but at the end of the day, the decision of who you marry is entirely up to you, both for the man and the woman. A girl cannot be forced to marry anybody. Um, and in fact, Islam goes above and beyond in protecting the rights of women in particular with regard to marriage um, by ensuring that there's a vali or guardian who also signs off on the marriage. In other words, uh, because marriages are arranged between men and women, um, there's, you know, there's no familiarity to that extent at a personal level of the girl's side with the boy's side. And so if in the unfortunate situation where a man is forcing a woman to marry her, Islamic society allows for a man chosen by the woman to be her representative to vouch and say that, no, this is not being done out of force, but this is a girl's own wish, and and she has signed off and agreed to the marriage with this man. It's actually a very beautiful concept that protects the rights of women. Islam protects up the rights of women in many capacities, and this is an example in the institution of marriage of having a guardian. Some feel that having a guardian is basically the opposite. It's basically saying somebody chooses for the girl, but that's actually not the case. Um, and there's many discourses that can be quoted, particularly from the fourth and fifth caliphs in recent memory that I could think of, where this this commentary has been given about the concept of a guardian, and this basically proves that the girl herself has free will to marry, and the same goes for the man. And so, you know, there's a spectrum. There's forced marriage, which happens in certain societies, and that definitely does not happen in Islam. And then there's complete liberty to interact with the opposite gender and and um, marry without uh, without any arrangement of sorts, without any guardrails, and that's what's practiced in Western societies. So Islam is a religion of moderation, and it takes the middle way. And that middle way is that, no, you don't intermingle and then, uh, you know, date and then let that date fail and then go to the next person and see what works and eventually decide on somebody that you want to marry. Um, but at the same time, you're not forced to marry. And so the middle way is the way of free will, where um, a Muslim chooses who they marry, but it's done through a way of arrangement, because since there's no intermingling of genders, then it requires an arrangement and that people can vouch for other folks and say that, and can make introductions of, of who um, would be available to marry. Um, so I don't know if that's the best answer, but basically uh, the point is, is that forced marriage is not allowed in Islam, but at the same time um, an arranged marriage system is is the, the most wholesome and productive way to find a spouse. Yeah.
Yeah, yeah, and and obviously that does answer the question. Um, and if you could just kindly shed some light for for our listeners uh, in regards to what the Islamic marriage or or nikah process is. Yes, sure. So uh, nikah or the union of man and woman is um, is a requirement for marriage. You can call it the marriage ritual or the solemnization of the marriage. So. Um, I'm not uh, an imam or a student of religion, so perhaps a, a missionary or an imam could give a better philosophy behind it. But basically the point is, is that uh, nikah is the Islamic legal marriage. It's the junction of the man and the woman. It's a ceremony in which um, verses of the Holy Quran are recited. Oaths are taken uh, by both the man and the woman. Uh, the haq meher or the dower money that the man side gives to the girl side or the man gives to the woman is announced. Um, the guardian of the woman and the, and the man himself have to uh, consent to the marriage in this ceremony. And, uh, and then that becomes the official marriage. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's a document that is signed by parties with witnesses. Uh, again, the ceremony is ritualized solemnized by an imam or missionary, and that marks the marriage. Uh, and so it's a requirement of faith. The Holy Prophet of Islam, may peace and blessings of God be upon him, uh, said that the nikah should be announced. It should be announced publicly, not secretly, and um, it should be done in a, in a mosque, preferably, but not always. But it should be done with uh, an imam or somebody uh, conducting that marriage ritual. Um, and so that's what's done in, in Western society. Obviously, a nikah is not viewed in a legal sense, so there's still a legal marriage that's required. I know here in the United States we make it a requirement to do the actual court marriage, and then the nikah is done shortly thereafter. Um, and uh, it's, it's a beautiful uh, tradition of Islam, and the Holy Prophet of Islam, um, w- when he would uh, recite the nikah, he would recite, a collection of verses of the Holy Quran, five in particular, that taken from four different chapters. And what's interesting about those verses, which are recited in every nikah, is that uh, the word uh, uh, fear of God, or the term for Arabic for fear of God, which we call taqwa or righteousness, is mentioned multiple times on four or five occasions in those in those verses, basically to remind the couple and the families and all that are in attendance that if marriage is rooted in righteousness, then that is the foundation or the seed for a successful marriage. So from the very day one of the marriage, the emphasis is put on righteousness. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it, we we can see as well that in the root, the, in the nikah, the which is like like you mentioned, the the the, the ceremony, um, the Islamic ceremony for marriages, uh, we, the the root word of taqwa is mentioned it, within those four short verses, uh, four times as well, which yeah. obviously, like you suggested, it, it, it indicates and it shows us that the the whole base, the whole foundation of our nikah, of our Islamic marriage, is in fact righteousness and fearing God. Uh, so of course that has a huge part to play when it comes to not just our relationship with our partners, but uh, in fact any relationship that we have with anyone, whether it's siblings, parents, children, teachers, students, uh, friends, peers, co-workers, whatever it might be, this is something which also always uh, needs to be kept in mind. Um, 
Dr. Asan Jazakallah, thank you for, for being with us, for answering our questions and sh- shedding some light um, onto what uh, the matrimony uh, uh, department uh, in, in the U.S. is doing. And, and this is something which is being echoed uh, throughout the, the, the world. I mean, uh, whilst you were saying um, and answering our questions, I was just thinking about here in the U.K. Uh, and everything is pretty much the same. We're, we're, we're also conducting it in the same manner. Uh, the missionaries are doing it over here as well. And um, and, and like you mentioned, this this is the the guidance um, that His Holiness has given us, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. And we're so fortunate that all of us can follow it, regardless of however close or far we might be uh, geographically. Um, and this is the beauty of, of uh, the true Islam, Ahmadiyya as well. So once again, Jazakallah, and uh, we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well. Thank you for having me, and uh, best best wishes to you on your show. God bless. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Thank you for that. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you. That was Dr. Asan M Khan, um, who's serving as the National Secretary uh, of Rishtanata, which is uh, Matrimonial Affairs uh, for the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community in the <coughs> United States. He is an ophthalmologist, married with three kids, and resides in L.A., California. Um, he also serves as Director of the Gift of Sight program for Humanity First USA. Um, we we can see that, uh, of course, there's so much uh, that we can learn from different people from different parts of the world. Um, there are approximately 190 countries in the world and 7 billion people on Earth, which means that many diverse cultures and religions exist. And their concept of celebrating love would differ from one another as well. For example, Christians believe that God is the essence of eternal love. The Holy Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he's told us that you will not enter paradise until you believe, uh, and you will not believe until you love to and other Muslim, what do you love for yourself? Um, we can see, of course, that love is celebrated differently by different cultures. Um, Beyond the uh, well-known bow, the, uh, the the Japanese are not keen on a body language touching, um, and this is unwelcome during conversation, especially between two people of the opposite sex. The French, however, tend to do more openly uh, exhibit the communicative gestures of love in comparison to other uh, cultures. Um, and with the West becoming more culturally di- culturally diverse, how do we maintain? Uh, um, a balance between two cultures of two culturally diverse people coming together. We're, and this is the, the the question that we'll be answering in just a short while. But before we do so, uh, we do have with us on the line our next guest for the show. Um, similar uh, introduction um, as our previous guest as well, Dr. Muhammad Iqbal now, which uh, who is serving as a National Secretary of Rishtanat over here, uh, Matrimonial Affairs in the UK. And uh, he also hosts the popular uh, Voice of Islam Living History Show. So many of you will be aware of him as well. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Dr. Muhammad Iqbal, how are you doing? Welcome, Islam, and Alhamdulillah, I'm fine. Thank you for having me for this morning's show. Very good, very good. Jazakallah. Some Thank you for for being with us. Forgot to mention that he is also married with five children and three grandchildren. Oh, as well. Mashallah, Mashallah. <laughs> very good. Um, Allah's blessings. <laughs> most certainly, most certainly. The the first question that we wanted to ask you was: What is the Islamic perspective on intercultural and or interracial uh, marriages? 
Islam generally uh, encourages that because you got to remember the the, the mission um, um, that the Holy Prophet came for and that Islam had was to unite the whole of mankind. As you know, there are many religions and many religious founders throughout the world that have been uh, there and, uh, you know, from China to Europe to the Middle East in particular, many names have been mentioned, but virtually the Holy Quran says messengers have been sent to all peoples of the world. And um, the, the the Holy Quran describes this uh, uh, beautifully, um, uh, you know, in terms of the origins of mankind and how they're linked together uh, uh, racially, etc. And I'm just going to uh, read this from it's, um, Surah al uh, verse 14. It says, Oh mankind, we have created you from a male and a female. And we have made you tribes and sub-tribes that you may know one another. Verily, the most honorable among you in the sight of Allah is he who is the most righteous among you. Surely Allah is all-knowing, all-aware. So this was basically the message of Islam in the Holy Quran. And the fact that if you were African or an Arab, white, black, well, it didn't really matter, and this was reinforced by the Holy Prophet ﷺ in his last sermon, and the most uh, listeners will know, read into Islam and Islamic uh, history. And the Holy Prophet make, made it absolutely clear that mankind was one, and the most important thing, really, in religious terms, is righteousness. So, uh, yeah, Islam did not put any barriers. As long as you were righteous, you could uh, marry uh, but of course, one of the crucial things, which we'll probably come to later on, is about yeah, not only righteousness, but having uh, the faith and being people of the book, etc. So, uh, what about marrying someone of a different faith then? Well, this is where, again, the Holy Quran, um, you know, tells Muslims to uh, accept other prophets that uh, had been. And generally, the guidance was given that Muslim-believing men could marry people of the book, which, you know, in that area of the Middle East in particular, largely implied Christians and Jews, etc. So, and uh, many of the followers of the Holy Prophet, as Islam spread very quickly after he passed away, uh, did, you know, marry uh, uh, women. And the Holy Quran says uh, uh, that it's important uh, that um, women for, who are righteous and believing are married, but not idolatrous uh, women, uh, because those who believe in idolatry will have much more difficulty in understanding your faith and your, whereas people of the book believe in the same God of Abraham, etc., so much more uh, common. So uh, generally, but it was it, Muslims were encouraged that uh, if a conversion takes place, and that is the case even now, uh, that it is better because then you are unified in your mission, in your approach to life, the way you bring up your children, etc. So, uh, but um, it, it was allowed, but conversion is preferred. Mm, okay. So um, in Islam, is is dating or courting permissible? Well, not really. I mean, in, in Islam, uh, there is a strong emphasis that parents should also be involved when you're making uh, decisions of marriage, etc. 
Uh, and that's based on the fact that they have experience, they have their own knowledge and wisdom uh, as well. They can share and find out the best matches and so make uh, introductions. Of course, you'll recall, you know, the Holy Prophet and the first time he got married, obviously, it wasn't through anybody else's agency. Uh, the Khadija um, you know, she sort of uh, uh, approached uh, the, or, or raised the idea of marriage with the Holy Prophet as well. But generally speaking, uh, courting is not allowed because that is about then, you know, mixing before marriage, etc. And, uh, uh, you know, wrong influences really can uh, sometimes uh, damage a relationship as well. Mm. So Islam prefers that uh, you have guidance and assistance in into making introductions, but uh, uh, you don't have this free courting of going around and playing as in Western culture and living openly and even having sexual relationships before marriage, etc., which is what it leads to eventually. You can see it quite clearly. Uh, so it's not encouraged, and uh, certainly in the Amdiya Muslim community, we try to uh, get this across to our young people. Mm. And uh, obviously, as you're the National Secretary for Islam in the UK, uh, could you kindly advise our listeners uh, what one should look for in a, uh, a potential spouse, or, and also what makes an uh, eligible uh, eligible bachelor or bachelorette? Well, again, the Holy Prophet you know, provided a wonderful example uh, in terms of uh, um, the way he treated his wives, uh, etc. as well. But starting off, you know, the first point of finding the right spouse, the right wife, uh, is, is uh, important. There's a beautiful hadith which says, uh, a woman is, and this is guidance from the Holy Prophet again, so a woman is married for four reasons, for her wealth, her status, which is lineage, her beauty, and her religion. So marry the one who is religious, and you will be successful. It's piety and righteousness that's important, so that religious factor comes into it. Of course, you know, there are other aspects of... uh, um, you know, beauty, and which we we, we can't ignore, but uh, one must uh, uh, have a right balance in selecting the partner. And if you want a lifetime partner, you want somebody uh, who's truly be honest, gentle, caring, um, you know, flexible, willing to understand you, your family, and equally, you are able to understand their family as a ma- as a man. And the same thing, I think, applies, you know, when girls are selecting a, a man or a boy as well, that they should look at piety and righteousness and good nature rather than how wealthy they are, how flashy their cars are, uh, etc. And uh, unfortunately, society has become very materialistic and, um, you know, there are very many wrong things and bad things being taught about relationships. And um, there is, of course, this sort of the gender wars, you know, the Western culture in particular promotes very much, you know, it's males against females and don't listen to anything that males say, etc. And we have to overcome that in uh, in the community and generally as Muslims uh, as well. Mm, Indeed. Um, uh, Dr. Iqbal, for those of our listeners, you know, who are, uh, they're already married, uh, they're already in a relationship, um, obviously from your uh, successful and blessed marriage, uh, can you please uh, give them any tips on maintaining their marriage, on how to keep loving 
one's life partner, especially through um, thick and thin? Well, you know, the the Dormis Musaim Adi al-Islam quite often said to his fellows, the best amongst you is the one who treats his uh, wife the best. So you can see the emphasis he put uh, on the sort of quality of married uh, life. And equally, you know, a wife uh, obviously should be uh, kind and gentle and caring to her uh, husband uh, as well. But uh, marriage is not a bed of roses, you know, but you have to make it uh, a a nice and pleasant bed. And Mm -hmm. the Islamic teaching and the Holy Quran, you know, says that we are a garment for each other. A garment has its beauty and it has its protective nature as well. And that's how uh, it should be. Um, So it's, uh, again, there's a beautiful verse from the Holy Quran, and I'll read it to you. You know, it says, uh, and one of his signs is this that he has created wives for you from amongst yourselves that you may find peace of mind in them. And he has put love and tenderness between you. In that surely are signs for the people who reflect. So you can see how much God in the Holy Prophet and Islam puts into the caring nature and looking after each other. Not, you know, whether you take your wife to the Bahamas or buy her a Mercedes or you have a, you know, wonderful house better than anybody else. Those things are useful and it's nice to have you for love blessings. Yeah, that's fine. Mm. But it's how you care for each other, how you care for the, your loved ones around you. And that's the, so that's what you leave behind when you go to your grave. You go empty-handed. Yes, indeed, indeed. Um, Dr. Mohamed Iqbal, it has been a pleasure uh, speaking to you today. And uh, hopefully, inshallah, we can, God willing, we can uh, speak to you soon as well. Inshallah. And uh, we pray that you have a great day ahead as well. Thanks. Jazakallah. Take care. Jazakallah. Assalamualaikum. That was Dr. Muhammad Iqbal, uh, who is serving as National Secretary, Rishtanata um, Matrimony UK. Uh, he also hosts the, the, the popular Voice of Islam Living History Show. Yeah, and uh, I mean, we can learn so much from that uh, conversation and from that discussion as well, uh, especially uh, in regards to how we can maintain our relationships as well, uh, which is very much linked to the first topic which we are addressing today. Um, Just a few um, narrations, I think, of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, we should share for the benefit of our listeners. Um, And he he mentioned that, um, uh, especially when it comes to uh, relationships and when it comes to um, looking for a, a, a suitable uh, partner for our children, for ourselves, for whoever it might be, the Holy Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He said that when someone with those with with whose religion and character you are satisfied uh, asks you to marry your daughter, um, comply with his request. If you do not do so, there will be corruption and great evil on earth. He was asked, O Messenger of Allah, even if he falls short with regard to wealth and compatibility, he responded, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he responded uh, and repeated himself three times that if there comes to you with whose religion and character you are pleased, then give your daughter to him in marriage. I mean, as we can learn from that, 
that uh, uh, and this is something that Dr. Muhammad Iqbal was also mentioning as well that we shouldn't be looking at wealth or or, or fame or, or other such things or how important or influential a person or an individual might be or how how high their their status is hmm. but rather something which is of the utmost importance is uh, in regards to how um, religious they are, what their level of spirituality and piety and righteousness is, and these are the things which we should uh, we should use as a level to determine whether or not our daughter or our, or our son is good enough for the relationship, uh, or is uh, if that level of compatibility is there. The most important thing that we need to look at is, of course, that of righteousness. Um, just coming towards the end of the show now, uh, uh, one last um, uh, um, narration that I'd like to share before ending today's show is that the Holy Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he mentioned that the best of you is the one who looks after their their their, their ties, their relationships in the best of manner. And he went on to say that I am the best person who does this. And we can learn from this that, of course, the Holy Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he is our perfect role model anyway. But even in this regard, when it comes to relationships and uh, uh, strengthening ties, we should always look at his role model and try to emulate and copy and follow that as well. And that's uh, all that we have time for today. Here's the 9 o'clock news.